Welcome to Still Dead from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and woman who was absent the day they taught Seabreeze at bartender school, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm researcher and host, Dr. Kelly Jones. Have you met me? I never shut up. And we're here today to talk about Angel Season 2, Episodes 13 and 14, Happy Anniversary and the Thin Deadline, both of which are skippers because they're just so, so bad. These episodes are terrible, (laughs) terrible, but all the other champions we know are currently out of town or dead, so let's raise the stakes. In an episode that proves math is in fact pure evil and that equations will be the undoing of us all, Lauren and Angel search karaoke bars and college yearbooks to track down a physicist named Gene who's about to end the world because he can't handle his emotional shit and decides to freeze time before his girlfriend breaks up with him. Some lubber demons go all goodwill hunting on Gene's equations to extend his freeze ray across the whole planet, but Lauren and Angel are able to stop this nonsense just in time. Hello, Irony Smash. Meanwhile, Cordelia, Gunn, and Wesley solve their first lucrative case as the Angel-Free Angel Investigations Agency. Happy Anniversary aired on February 6, 2001. It was directed by Bill L. Norton, who will return to direct five more episodes of Angel. The story was written by Joss Whedon and David Greenwald with teleplay by David Greenwald. All right. So, Kelly, (laughs) perfect (laughs) happiness scale. The pH scale goes from zero to six for no really good reason. Um, Where'd you land on this? So, I actually tried to crack myself up. Because I was going to write an equation for this. <laughs> so I had actually started keeping track of the number of minutes that I was entertained versus the number of minutes that I was pissed off. Wow. And then I was going to do like a percentage based on the mm-hmm. total run show of the episode. Mm-hmm. But then I got to Jean and I just said, fuck it. And it gets yeah. one. <laughs> like, I'm just giving this a one. And it only gets one because of Lorne. Absolutely. Yes. We get such damn good Lorne. And Lorne calls Angel his chipper friend. And I was like, oh, they're shouting out to Chipperish. That's so sweet. Of course they are. They're reaching (laughs) into the future. Yes. (laughs) And there was academic humor and music and snark. And Angel Mm -hmm. evoked Johnny Cash. And the Lorne-Angel dynamic is so fantastic. Plus lots of karaoke bars. But I mean, damn. Everything with Jane is so awful and if they'd Mm -hmm. left out that stupid horrible breakup nonsense and just had a physicist who was going to accidentally in the world unknowingly aided by demons this could have been a really good and fun episode it was set in a university and it had geeky sci-fi and it aired on my birthday so there was so much i could have loved and the lost potential for good story frustrates me as much as having yet another misogynistic entitled little baby man (laughs) (laughs) well i'm with you i gave it a one only only because of lorne yeah yeah (laughs) i hate this episode with like every fiber of my being gene is terrible the worst kind of entitled white man whose goal is to freeze his girlfriend in an eternal act of murder slash rape and then after lorne and angel stop him they comfort him Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is just beyond adding insult to injury. I like the Lauren and Angel dynamic, but again, Cordy, West and Gunn are just treading water until Angel comes back. I mean, and I don't understand, how is this episode written by Joss Whedon and David Greenwald? I mean, right? <laughs> right. I mean, I see the unfortunate theme of Whedon's male entitlement, which does come into a lot of his work, but it usually shows up as a more subtle thread. But even the moment-to-moment writing, which is usually something you can depend on Whedon and Greenwald for isn't that great Mm -mm. so it gets a one only because of Lauren otherwise it would be a zero maybe a negative five I don't know it's not good I think it would have skewed into the negative without Lauren I think it absolutely would so so moments of perfect happiness I don't know if there's any perfect happiness I think on a scale you know (laughs) there's there's some minor happiness and I think most of it honestly is Lauren yeah my 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 perfect happiness was all green yeah. But Lauren singing the national anthem in that oh empty God. hotel lobby to wake Angel up. I love that. And God, <laughs> Andy Hallett can sing. 
Yes, I know. And then Lorne saying, hey, big fella, to a yeah. very pissed off angel <laughs> delighted me to no end. And he was like, you got to be singing in here all the time. Come on with these acoustics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just love him. But I really liked how Lorne brought this case to Angel with no panic mm-hmm. and no pleading and no time for Angel's brooding bullshit. Right. You know, mm-hmm. Angel was like, is there a reason you're here? <laughs> He's all grumpy and pissed off. And Lauren says, oh, what's today? Thursday? Yeah, tomorrow night the world's going to end. Thought you might want to know. <laughs> and I just, like, I just love Lauren. I know. He's fantastic. And we got, you know, we got Lauren's traditional snark and sarcasm, mm-hmm. which I love. But we also mm-hmm. got some really good wisdom and insight yeah. from Lorne. Mm-hmm. Like when he was talking about Angel's depression, he said, it's not always going to be this way. The song changes. Mm-hmm. That idea of the song changes. Right. Cause we bring that back at the end and that's actually a really nice call, mm-hmm. you know, but then he follows that with, unless of course we don't get there in time, in which case you'll be frozen in this crappy mood forever. <laughs> <laughs> love it and he you know we have angel being so broody and pissy Mm -hmm. and just mad and lauren calls him honey angel face and mr get to the pointy pants i know (laughs) so so great great and then i had a moment here where this really reminded me of something you talked about with aaron sorkin Mm -hmm. with dialogue that sounds like music yeah because some of lauren's lines really do have a rhythm to it like mm-hmm. this is the big blackout that we're talking about like, right there's, there's a, a rhyme to that there's a rhythm to that yeah no he does he has a lot of that in his dialogue yeah and then he's got that high note as a battle attack which yeah <laughs> i just thought was so great you know and then there was that one second when angel had to hide in the back seat because they were driving during the daytime and he mm-hmm. asked lauren he's like where'd you learn to drive and lauren said <laughs> Just now, in your car. I'm pretty good for a beginner. <laughs> I know, and I love that about Lorne. Yeah. Like, he's not intimidated by stuff. He's, I just, I love him. He's so yep. great. Me too. Mm-hmm. And I did like some of what we got from Angel. I did too. Yeah, I thought there was some good stuff there. Yeah. But it was mostly funny. But I think this was the first time we really got to see Lorne and Angel together in a way mm-hmm. that wasn't angels just coming to lauren for advice yeah and mm-hmm. i like that movement of making lauren more part of the team or making yeah. Lorne really active you mm-hmm. know in a case or preventing the end of the world mm-hmm. and i liked when they were searching the karaoke bars and you know lauren has that one bartender he called goliath right. <laughs> that guy knows all about <laughs> demons and vampires and damn he could sing I know. And Lauren wanted him to think about, you know, have that mental picture of Gene and then sing for him. Yeah. And Angel was like, you know, he's a demon. You better do what he says or he might talk your ears <laughs> off. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no, it's very sweet. And I love that moment after, he, you know, he listens to him sing, you know, and they go through this whole thing. And he says, and you keep plugging away on that novel F. Scott. Art is its own reward. And he looks at Angel. He says, got to give the people hope. <laughs> It's so incredibly sweet. And I love that Lauren is so, he's so confident and capable Mm -hmm. and he's not freaking out. He's Mm -hmm. like, okay, this is what it is. We're going to deal with it. You know, I I really liked that. I do too. Mm -hmm. And then we did have Angel in character. Yes. When he was at the university. (laughs) He was pretending to be Leonard Tomman from the Tomman Foundation. Great money. And I was like, oh, honey. That is so smart because nothing is going to open a university door faster than grant money. (laughs) I love seeing Angel Mm -hmm. go all academic. It was great. (laughs) It's some of Angel's, he was sort of sharing his emotions with Lorne, Mm -hmm. you know, saying, I'm trying to atone for a hundred years of unthinkable evil. Newsflash, I never can. He's like, Angel, why are you so cranky? You should lighten up. You should smile. You should wear a nice plaid. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It was really nice. I loved him being angry in that moment. And then he comes out with it. And he's like, Darla had a shot at redemption and they took it from her. Now I have to hunt her down and kill her. Mm -hmm. You know, so he's so pissed and resentful of the position that Wolfman Hart put him in. Yeah. You know, and I mean, and he also kind of talks about how, like, how part of the reason why he let Cordy and Wesley go was because. I mean, not just because they were going to give him a hard time about his obsession with Wolfram and Hart, but also that like he didn't want them to 
to they didn't want to be a part of it and he didn't Mm -hmm. want to make them be a part of it Mm -hmm. and so he just he fired them and it was cold and mean but I think his intent was was protective in nature yeah I think so too and maybe this was from me recently talking about walk the line with Mandy Kay on southern fried pop culture but (laughs) Angel had this line and he was dressed all in black and it called Mm -hmm. Johnny Cash to mind for me so strongly and it just tickled me pink. But he told Gene, he said, well, you know, love, it's a fire. It burns you alive down to the bone. Then it turns the bone to ash. (laughs) Which is... Which is a good line if he wasn't sympathizing with a guy who was... Truly terrible, but we'll get to that. <laughs> exactly. But then Jane goes to get the poor baby beer, and mm-hmm. Lauren is like, hey, you're connecting to a human. That's a start. Although I'd go easy on the bone and ash metaphors for a while. And mm-hmm. Angel said, well, the guy's a disaster at love, and he nearly destroyed the world. I can relate. Right. <laughs> I liked Angel's self-awareness in that moment. Yeah, it was, it was very, very cool. So there was some good stuff. In this episode, mm-hmm. <laughs> is there anything else that you like? So it was really funny because most of my happiest moments were intertextual. Sure. Mm-hmm. I kept getting thrown out of the story because when I was not disgusted or infuriated with Gene, he bored right. the hell out of me. Oh, God. Seriously. Oh, my God. But the episode brought some fun things to mind. So mm-hmm. when Gene was talking about his theory of entanglement, mm-hmm. he said, in Newton's world, space and time are separate entities. In Einstein's, they're intertwined. And I was like, well, in Doctor Who's world, it's more wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. Right. And <laughs> that delighted me to know him. Yes. You got and it. then that drop of mercury in the lab made me start singing Train's Drop of Jupiter. Oh, yeah. And now that song has been in my head for two days. Sure. And I love Goodwill Hunting. And this episode kept reminding me of that movie. And now I want to watch yeah. it again. And yeah. Wesley solving that mystery kind of reminded me of Clue. Oh, like, sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love that movie. And I like Gunn saying, that was cool. When yeah. Wesley named the ant in the foyer with the foxglove and the hellebore. <laughs> but there were also things to stake in that scene. Yes. And then there was kind of a bittersweet sadness when the team was coming together and moving on without angel and at the end when they had that client coming in you know gun said if you need help you're in the right place and the client said well which one of you is angel and wesley said it's just a name yeah yeah there was good if we could just cut all the crap out of this episode it could have been a good episode yeah, no, there there was good stuff. I liked when Lauren said blood vengeance is a luxury of the lesser beings. Yeah. You know, because it, it really speaks to the very complicated issues of vengeance and how vengeance tends to have a splashback effect on the deliverer and uh and that can be difficult. But um but yeah, you pretty much hit on everything that I liked about the episode and so uh since there's nothing else to like, let's just get to our stake this. All right. You wanna you wanna you wanna do the honors of staking the really terrible stuff in I this may episode? or may not have written a thesis on this. <laughs> so my thesis is called Keen Mean Poor Baby Gene and his time freezing machine. <laughs> <laughs> Denise wants to break up with Jane, so Mm -hmm. he's going to give her the kind of love that lasts. Oh, my fucking God. This guy is not hollow. He is a selfish prick, mad scientist who would rather take Denise's life from her than have her leave him. Right. Which, you know, is fine if you have a bad character who is called out as bad. Right. But we treat him like a sympathetic character throughout this whole thing yeah and i don't think so poor baby gene uh-uh yeah hell no right and, and i'm like okay let's define some terms mm-hmm. what do we call holding someone against their will mm-hmm. kidnapping imprisonment enslavement what do we call ending someone's life by trapping them in a freeze ray we call mm-hmm. that murder yeah and when that's done during an act of sex we call that perpetual rape. exactly yes you know and also like what would Denise's state of awareness have been for all the rest right. of time? Right? Well, she didn't know. She was frozen in that state for a while, and then they moved on. And she had right. no idea. But that doesn't mean it's okay. It's not okay. Right. But, yeah. like, Gene had talked about it before. He was like, you're 
when he was talking about this idea, he said your dog mm-hmm. and his favorite bone frozen together in a bubble forever. Well, then is the consciousness awake yeah. during that? Like, yeah. would that have also been eternal emotional torment for her? But does it matter? Yeah, but it all of that matter. is like he's fine her. because right. he can't handle a girl breaking up with him. And mm-hmm. this was a small thing, but it drove me crazy. Mm-hmm. Jean and Denise cannot finish their sentences. Oh, like yeah. Jean says to Denise, "You look uh," and I'm like, "Pretty, beautiful, mm-hmm. feeling like finish your goddamn words." And right, when he right. gives her the necklace, Denise is like, "Thank you for the uh," and I'm like, "It's mm-hmm. a necklace." Right. Just <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> and and I was so freaking like between being thoroughly pissed off, I was so bored with him. It was like me mm-hmm. and Dark Willow and we're both going bored now. Exactly. And, and then again at the end, Gene looks at Lauren and Angel and he's like, I'm glad you guys uh and then he walks away. I'm like right. stopped you from ending <laughs> the world, you fucking idiot. Stopped me you know? from being stuck in a perpetual, you know, rape. Yeah. And murder? Sure. Oh my god. Yeah. And and not yeah. only was Gene basically a sociopath in sweet geek boy's clothing, mm-hmm. he was so fucking entitled and willing to yes. claim credit for an equation he knows damn well he did not solve. Right. I was like, yes, dude, bro. Don't worry about who changed your whiteboard math. Just go with it. Take it. Right. Use it. Yeah. Absolutely. And he's like, yeah. I definitely think this is a yeehaw moment. I said, no, child. This is an asshat moment because you are a mad scientist and a plagiarist. <laughs> so it's both morally bankrupt and intellectually bankrupt as well. Yes. And I mean, so let's damn. just hit all the categories of being an asshole. Right. Yeah. And Gene, mm-hmm. you don't bring sex toys. Or scientific equipment to bed without your partner's consent. Yes, absolutely. That's just a rule. And then Mm -hmm. I was like, all right, Jane, what's the play here? You're going to freeze time before, during, or after an orgasm. No, it was during during. his orgasm. Yes, exactly. It was during his. His. And it didn't look like he was doing anything for her during that sex scene. She was also bored now. Yeah. Let me tell you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and and oh my god like I, I can't even and then he's like yeah. at the end oh i'm really sorry i had no idea i was putting the whole world in jeopardy or that there were all right. these demons and i was like motherfucker you knew you were freezing yourself inside a girl who wanted to break up with you forever exactly like, too fucking bad if she you didn't want her to leave completely an object for him yeah right? a dog with the bone she's the fucking bone right and then he gets poor baby beer with mm-hmm. Angel. Yes. And, and yes. not even Lorne. Not even Lorne. And Lorn. then he gets comforted. Yes. Yes. And, you know, Lorne, who I love and hold in such high esteem. Lorne, who had chastised Angel for setting Darla and Drew on fire. Uh-huh. Lorne doesn't even say anything to him. Lorne doesn't no. even call him out on this bullshit. No. And that is the real problem here. It's not that Gene did a bad thing. It's that we're like, oh, no, it was the inadvertently ending the world that was the bad thing. What you did to this woman, what you tried to do to this woman that you claim to love. No, I don't think so. I mean, it's it's murder. It's rape. It lacks consent. It is all of these bad things, he freezes himself in the moment when he is having an orgasm, not her. And just all of it, all of it is so fucking appalling. And then for Angel and Lorne to comfort him with a beer afterward as though he had done nothing wrong. This is so incredibly evil. And they're just like, no, whatever. I just... I can't even with it. And this is the kind of thing. This is what I'm talking about. When we tell a story in which somebody behaves horribly and we pretend like it's okay, that's the message that we send, that there's nothing wrong with him objectifying and taking claim and ownership over this woman that he, quote unquote, supposed to love. You know, I mean, no, it's just, it's so bad. It's so offensive on a million different levels i can't even with it yeah it was just awful and like Mm -hmm. i didn't i knew i didn't want to watch it i knew it was terrible yeah Mm -hmm. oh my god and then i'm like all the great stuff that we get is just completely wiped out because yeah the awful is just too awful you know yeah and even lorne so like like Mm -hmm. that moves me into my second section of staking stuff yes even lorne was talking about cordelia 
yeah. as you know, as a sex object. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, did the writers give him that line? Because, oh my God, we might think Lauren is gay. So let's make sure we know he has the hots for Cordy. Or right. was it, and maybe I want to hold Lauren in high esteem on this. I thought maybe he's just saying that to provoke Angel into giving a holy goddamn. Like he was trying to make Angel mad. Yeah. But then I'm like, why am I giving a man the benefit of the doubt for saying that kind of shit about Cordelia? Exactly. And I mean, the thing is, like, I can I can appreciate Lorne appreciating Cordelia's beauty, both inner and outer. Yeah. I think that he would see the whole Cordelia. But the way it was stated was it felt a little... Yeah, a little objectifying to me. And so for me, I just had canon it as not Lorne. Yeah. Like, it's it's not consistent with anything else that we have in Lorne. We have so much great, fantastic exactly. stuff from Lorne. Lorne not calling this asshole out on what he was doing is also not Lorne. No, Lorne it's just sees. not. But the problem is we have, and you know what, like, Joss Whedon, he's a brilliant writer. I think that he has got incredible amount of talent. I love his work, but there is a huge blind spot for him and it comes with objectifying women. Like that is just one of the things that he does. Um, He has a lot of these things in his work that are really, really a problem and, and characters who are ordinarily, you know, good about seeing things and calling things out. This is the one area where they have this huge blind spot and it's because there's a blind spot for the writer you know, that I think that Joss Whedon on some, like some element didn't know that it was wrong, mm-hmm. that this is horrible and offensive. I mean, super offensive. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm just calling it as like, there's a whole bunch of stuff in this episode that is not Lorne and I will not accept it as Lorne and I'm head cannoning it right out. Me too. And thank yeah. God, I don't think we see mm-hmm. this from Lorne again. I don't think so. You I know? don't think so. But this episode is Yeah, it's just bad. And so in addition to that, I have also seen a blind spot sometimes where cruelty is dressed up as humor. Yeah. And this really bothers me. Yeah, we have tons of that. Right. Mm -hmm. So Wesley solving this, this mystery, right? Going all clue, which was cute. But then he, you know, he calls this guy out for being impotent. And I'm like, how do we all know Kevin is impotent? And why does Wes have to be so mean about it? Right. And how is it relevant? Right. And then in front of everyone, Wes turns to Kevin and he's like, unfortunately, you had neither the intelligence nor the opportunity to perpetuate this crime. And Mm -hmm. I was like, yes, Wesley, you are very smart. But that intelligence crosses into cruel observation without empathy and respect and kindness. And you aren't Sherlock Holmes, darling, and we don't want you to be. So knock it off. Right. And Wesley, like, there is there is an element of coldness and cruelty in Wesley that we see it is a it's a shadow Wesley similar to the way that we have shadow Xander yeah where I'm not sure that it's uh intentional or that it's being called out but I think Mm -hmm. it is in his character yeah I think that that desire to be right Mm -hmm. with Wesley pushes him into a cruel space and it always bothers me yeah and on top of that like you know we've got this whole run of episodes where you know Cordy Wesley and Gunn are not really doing anything right you know they're just treading water like we don't have them moving a story forward we're just showing what they're doing while angel is engaging in the actual story Mm -hmm. so all this treading water stuff like i don't really care about it it's not that interesting i mean it was kind of neat to have this little like hercule perot kind of moment you know for him (laughs) um which was fun and putting all the pieces together and all that but i would have liked to have seen that in the context of an actual story right you know something actually happening but instead it's just you know we don't even see any of the lead up to this we just see the moment in the parlor right right, where he reveals everything that he's figured out and who cares right you know it's just not it's not really relevant yeah so yeah and then we had this moment from Lauren and I don't know if this is just me like in this episode feeling like there's so much that the writers just did not see like really important stuff that they didn't see. But we have this, this line from Lauren that says this whole sour pussy thing of yours. And it's not a great construction and it feels like a deliberate way to work pussy into the script and get it past, you know, uh, standards and practices. Yeah. So that kind of just 
irritated me. And I think it's something that in an episode that, I don't know, respected women a little <laughs> bit, maybe might not have bothered me so much. But it felt to me like they just really wanted to get that word in there. And it was a little bit of, you know, added insult to injury. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I and know, also really like me. the academic in me was mm-hmm. just so upset with yeah. the lover demons because sure. they have no respect for sacred spaces. And I mean, ending the world is one thing. Uh-huh. But you do not hit people with axes and start a fight in a library. <laughs> <laughs> there are Some lines. Some places people. are sacred. There are lines. <laughs> <laughs> I love that that's what offended you the most in this episode. <laughs> I mean, God damn it. Assholes are going to be assholes. But you know what? You get to a library. I don't care. Everybody yes. behaves. Just go outside and go, do that exactly. shit. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are books in this there place. There are books in Please, this space. people. Do Let's you... have some respect. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So did you have anything for research mode? I did, actually. Uh-huh. So I was really curious about Lauren's moral compass because mm-hmm. he strikes me as having equal concern for humankind and demonkind. You know, and so he tells Angel, so what we should do is start with the other local karaoke bars if you're not too busy getting lawyers killed or setting girls on fire. Mm -hmm. And that also made me wonder, how old is Lorne? Right. Because he calls Wesley, Gunn, and Cordelia kids. And he calls Darla and Drusilla girls. Mm -hmm. And and, and it's not in a dismissive way. Like, I think he sees them as very young. Mm -hmm. You know, and he acts like a peer... To Angel. Yeah. Who is 240 years old. Yeah. And underneath all that snark and sarcasm, there there is true wisdom. And I was just yeah. curious. I can't remember that we ever find out. I don't know how old address he is. it. What's what's funny is that the actor himself was like 24 at oh, this time, I, I think. He yeah. was really young. He was really But he young. does have that that like older mm-hmm. wisdom, you know, gravitas a little bit. I mean, I know gravitas is not exactly a word that you would associate with Lauren, but he does have that. Oh yeah, he does. Like he has that that knowledge and that wisdom which mm-hmm. I really like. Well, he has an but, old yeah, soul. I mean, I I think he's been around for a while. I think that I I don't know if we're going to discover exactly how long he's been around. Yeah. But I, I get the feeling that he has been around for a while. Yeah. It just, I was yeah. just curious. And yeah. and then we have this contrast with him that is almost sad to me because Lorne yeah. is accepting of everyone. Yeah. But he also fully accepts his otherness when he's in human spaces. Like yeah. he talks about wanting to ring in a Lakers game with the national anthem, but he said mm-hmm. the garden hue and the horns have kept me out of some key public performances. Right. And he's not mm-hmm. bitter about it. He just yeah. accepts it, you know, and he just accepts it. He right. hides his face in the library or pretends mm-hmm. to be a mascot. And like for someone who is so accepting of every form of life mm-hmm. to have to exist in a space where he's not even allowed to just be himself yeah struck me as it's just really both poetic and sad yeah no it is and he is very accepting of this Mm -hmm. like he's not bitter about it but also like you know i mean not to spoil anything but as we move forward with lauren we'll get we'll get more context for that yeah you know um he's just grateful i think to be in a place where he can you know sing anywhere right you know right so yeah yeah absolutely yeah. and mm-hmm. then we get the idea of demon theology mm-hmm. in this which i thought was very interesting because for all of the different religious symbols that we've seen in angel we've never actually had a discussion of theology and in this episode we got yeah. a very specific one yeah you know um although calling gene the golden child made me vomit a little bit in my head well, for evil. Yeah, I guess. I mean, he's, I guess, like, Gene is evil. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. So, I guess for evil things, he would be, you know, something to look up to. Right. But those, Lauren described those lover demons as a fanatical set and said, this yeah. is actually a pretty popular theory in the underworld. Demons just mm-hmm. don't talk about it much. Yeah. And I thought that that was kind of intriguing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea of that demon theology. And we do have certain things with that. We've seen that in Buffy, too. There was a lot of the first season of Buffy, right up until Spike shows up and kind of like burns that out. We have a lot of these very like religious, fanatical you know, kind of representations of vampires. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got the the prophecies, and there's a prophecy here. I mean, there's a lot of that kind of stuff sort of floating in the air. So having a, 
you know, fanatical demon sect, I think, is sort of in line with with that idea. Yeah. But we never really lock it down. Mm -hmm. You know, we just sort of throw out anybody who who shows a a religious belief, I think without exception is evil right i mean it's always the vampires it's always the demons yeah. right yeah uh, wolferman heart yeah right yeah it was yeah. just really interesting that is interesting my question is this if the lubber demons can change the formula and know how it works and they have all the answers the hell do they need gene for yeah right like what is that why yes. do they need him yeah we could have had a gene free episode Right. Like the lubber demons could have just been doing this. Yeah. Why do we need Gene right. being evil and not being called on it in this episode? So I don't know. This whole episode is just such a hot mess for me. So you got one for us to brood on? Yes, I decided that in Happy Anniversary, we learned a little bit more about Lorne's capacity and competencies. And we saw Angel maybe starting to regret firing the team. And mm -hmm. we saw the team holding their own without him. But we had to suffer through so much bullshit while not actually moving the main season storyline forward an inch. So while I love all the Lorne and Angel snark, in the name of every sea breeze that has <laughs> ever been poured, this episode is a skipper. Also, PSA, if you have a physics lab and a yen to freeze time, please do not try and just go sing karaoke instead. Absolutely. I think that is a good one to brood on. And as we brood on that, let's move forward into, oh, dear God, the thin dead line. In the thin dead line, a bunch of dead cops are reanimated into zombies and are brutally policing a precinct in Los Angeles, causing problems for the kids in Anne's shelter. She goes to Gunn, who helps her out while Wesley and Cordelia research a case for a girl who got bit by a demon and grew a third eye in the back of her head until they decide they should be helping Gunn anyway. Angel follows Gunn and Anne back to the shelter where a cop attacks him and he kicks the guy's head off, which keeps talking for a minute until it decomposes almost instantly. Angel brings in Kate and they track the problem down to the precinct captain. Meanwhile, Gunn goes out with his friends, hoping to videotape the cops in action. And when Wesley intervenes, the cop shoots him. Zombie cops come out in full force to eliminate the witnesses and attack the shelter. Angel finds the captain and breaks the magical what's and the zombie cops all fall to the floor of the shelter and decompose. Gunn and Cordy get Wesley to the hospital. And when Angel shows up, Cordy tells him to get lost. And as far as we know, the little girl still has an eye in the back of her head. The Thin Deadline aired on February 13th, 2001. It was directed by Scott McGinnis, who directed season one's Room with a View, and written by Jim Koof and Sean Ryan. Koof also wrote 5 by 5 and The Shroud of Vermont. Yeah, so um, so we got a perfect happiness scale, mm -hmm. right? Where zero is stake this and six is lost your soul. So what do you got for me, Kelly? I have a lovely round zero because yeah. I think this is the worst episode of Angel. It may well be. I also have a zero. This is just a bad episode. Aside from the seriously problematic racial politics, which we'll get to and stem from an inherent misunderstanding of how systemic racism creates the specific issues we deal with here. It's just a dumb episode. Nothing anyone does makes any sense. Why does Gunn think it's a good idea to go out and tape rampaging cops? Why does Gunn take Wesley back to the shelter and not, I don't know, a hospital? Why does Angel ever ever speak to Kate. She's not your friend, dude. And what kind of captain would reanimate his friends? I mean, what if one of their wives or kids saw them patrolling the streets after they had died? It's one thing to reanimate a bunch of random people, still bullshit, but these guys would be his friends who fell in the line of duty. And I do like the continuity of world building. We've got Anne and the teen shelter showing up again, but everything else in this episode is a muddled mess. Yep. So... That moves us into moments of perfect happiness, which I imagine are few and far between. So what do you got? I have moments of lukewarm happiness. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. So I did like we get to see Merle, who is packing because mm -hmm. he's had enough. Yes. <laughs> and I don't blame him. Yes. And I like that Merle kind of turned the tables on Angel. Mm -hmm. And he said, at least that British guy understood what a working relationship was. Had some right. respect. Mm -hmm. You don't care about anyone but yourself. How is old mm -hmm. Wesley and the other two you fired? They doing all right? And I liked him calling Angel out for yeah. firing his friends and not knowing how they were doing. 
And I loved the team dynamic of sharing a desk because yes. that was one of my favorite things about grad school, studying yeah. and writing at the same table with a group. Mm-hmm. So like that really yeah. spoke to me. I did like Anne. Yes. I like Anne too. Yeah. I liked mm-hmm. her getting the truth out of Kenny about the real reason he came. And I like that she went to Gunn. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I liked when Gunn said, Annie, I ain't seen you in a minute. Yeah. I just like that. And I like Gunn going yeah. back to the shelter with Anne. And also Gunn kind of having to face the fact that he sort of left a family behind yeah. when he joined Angel's team. And one of his former crew members calls him on it, you know, and says, mm-hmm. you ain't been around to tell nothing to Playing demon right. detective with your new family. Mm-hmm. And then Cordy had one line, which was not kind, but it did kind of crack me up. Mm-hmm. She said, Gunn graduated with a major in dumb planning from Angel University. He <laughs> sat at the feet of the master and learned well how to plan dumbly. <laughs> that cracked me up. It was pretty cute. <laughs> but it was pretty cute. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. There isn't much. Um, I liked Cordelia. You know, she says Angel Investigations, home of the Wicked High Creep Factor. So I like that. <laughs> yeah. um, I love this. Oh, God, it's so sad. This moment with Wesley and Cordelia when Anne says the angel helped her. Yeah. And then they're so they get up and they start walking toward her. And then she says, but it was really just, you know, to get back at this legal firm. And uh, and they just stop and they go back and they sit down and they're so sad. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really nice, you know. But uh, I like Wesley. You know, Wesley going out to try to save Gunn when mm-hmm. he gets shot, when he's in the hospital, and he says, is this morphine? Well, it's bloody lovely. Yeah, that was cute. <laughs> that was really <laughs> cute. And I love the relationship between Wes and Gunn. I think that's nice. I like Gunn at Wesley's bedside at the hospital. Yes. No, I think that that's really nice. Um, I like, you know, in this moment when Angel shows up at the hospital, you know, he finds out that Wesley got shot, and he goes to the hospital, and Cordy says... You know, you walked away, do us a favor and just stay away. And it's really sad. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I mean, fair enough. Right. You know, Angel fired them all and she's still really hurt. And I also don't know if I would necessarily call this like, quote unquote, perfect happiness. But at least they're all working on the same case. Everything's related to the main story. So we're kind of like harmonizing again, which is something we haven't done in a while. Yeah. So that was nice, I guess. Well, and I did have two moments of unexpected empathy in Mm -hmm. this. The first was for Angel. Because there's this beautiful opening shot of him in the Mm -hmm. empty hotel lobby. And the camera kind of pans out and he crosses his arms and lowers his head. And Mm -hmm. it's like Angel in still life in this moment of being totally alone. And I did Mm -hmm. feel for him in that moment. And then my heart completely shocked me because I had a moment of real, true, honest empathy for Kate (laughs) when she thought her dad might be a zombie cop. Yeah. And I really felt for her in that moment. Yeah, I thought that that was nice. You know, um, it didn't quite make it worth having Kate in the episode. But, you know, it was nice. It was nice. Um, And, you know, speaking of Kate, as we move into stake this, of course, my first thing is stake Kate, Mm -hmm. right? You know, and so we've got her with this weird hair again. And I know I keep obsessing over people's hair, but there's just weirdness happening with the hair. And it always is distracting to me. And I feel bad about that because it makes me really shallow. But it just, there's something about the hair that's just a little weird. (laughs) But we have Kate, of course, still being a jerk to Angel. Then again, the whole murder and mayhem thing is right up your alley. Well, shut up. Right. He's coming to you for help. He's obviously on your side. He's obviously working on the side of right. You know, yes, he is a vampire. We acknowledge that. But he's still doing the right thing, you know. And especially at the end, right, where we have this neighborhood where the cops have been harassing kids, beating kids, killing people, apparently, Mm -hmm. right, And Kate says, up until three months ago, there was a murder every two weeks, a rape every two days, a a robbery every hour and a half. And that's what you give back to the people in this community. I'm like, are you kidding me? You're telling me that having zombie cops beat people up with no due process, with no law, police brutality at its extreme is better than that because it's not happening to the people that you want to protect or whatever? I don't even know. Like, I don't even know how to unpack that. It just pissed me off when she said it. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't even begin 
to unpack that. Yeah. I just wanted to stake it all. But like, I wanted to stake the whole entire episode because for me, yeah. it's very simple. Mm-hmm. Just say no to zombies. Yeah. I don't, I don't like the zombie idea. I don't, mm-hmm. there's nothing about it that I want to watch. So like, yeah. zombies are bad enough. Zombies plus this episode yeah, was just This awful. episode is just a problem. It's just awful. It's just a problem. And then we get to this point. God, this is going to be, it's going to be a rant. So guys, just strap in. All right. <laughs> so we have Gunn blaming the kids, mm-hmm. right? Are you trying to play her? What, you know, like this whole thing. And the kids are like, no, these cops have been harassing us. And the thing that bugged me about this is that it shows Gunn not working within the context of what is actually happening in the world, which I think a black man and especially a black man living in Los Angeles would be aware of, but this was written by white people. And so it's kind of problematic. I mean, the stuff that is happening now with, you know, unarmed, you know, black people being shot, being harassed, they're getting, you know, called, the cops are getting called on them for absolutely nothing. That has always been happening. It's just we didn't talk about it before. Now Mm. we're talking about it. Now it's getting into the news. But that has always been happening. And excessive policing started as a response to the civil rights movement in the 60s. We've had racist systemic policies in place since the 40s, such as redlining that make it difficult for black people to create wealth. And that's something we've been deliberately doing. Um, Racist systems were needed when we stopped feeling it was okay to be openly racist. And my guess is that started in the 40s because Hitler made racism look really, really bad. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and you just couldn't be as openly racist. But America does not get a cookie for abolishing slavery that was like the one thing we did but then we responded with you know open racism with lynching with um with systemic policies that created communities that were stuck in poverty you know and then what we did was we got this whole law and order thing where we put people in a situation where there was financial coercion you could either work full-time at two jobs and still not be out of poverty or you could choose to do things that were extra legal you know and I don't mean like more legal than but not legal outside of the legal system and in which case then any harassment that you got was your fault and the reason you know that we did this was so that we could be racist while blaming it on while they were breaking the law so there are so many things that we have done as a country that have caused these problems and for gun to look at these kids and say are you messing with Anne? Are you trying to play her? Are you, you know, what were you doing that caused these cops to harass you? Right. You know, I mean, this is, this was written in 2001. That's post Rodney King, a black man living in Los Angeles, I believe would have a little more context for this and would not be at all shocked at the idea of, of cops harassing, you know, kids on the street. Oh, absolutely. Right. So all of it to me, is is just a big problem. And again, like I'm coming at this from this, you know, like obviously very white woman perspective, you know? Mm-hmm. So like, I don't want to sit here and lecture anybody on what a black man may or may not have said in 2001 Los Angeles, you know? Um, there is like, there's nothing wrong with wanting kids to, you know, to be responsible for themselves and to, you know, not take advantage of people and all of that kind of stuff. But there's a context here that I worry about because it kind of sends this message that these kids, regardless of what they may or may not have been doing, does not, you know, like justify police brutality, which would happen a lot. Right. You know, and so like the way in which we hold people of color accountable for breaking the law in a way that we don't hold white people accountable. There are sentencing disparities between white people and and black people or people of color who, you know, commit the same crimes. Oh, yes. Um, And it's it's not a mistake. It's not an accident you know, that we have like white men are 31% of the population. They hold 65% of elected offices. 70% of elected offices are held by a white person and 90% are held by men. Mm -hmm. So the thing is like a fair system doesn't create this, you know, complete imbalance in representation. And the people who are in power are making the laws and the laws are designed to maintain these systems where certain populations are forced into 
positions of poverty. And that is a financial, financially coercive situation where, you know, some people turn to sex work and sex work, I think is fine if you're choosing it because it's what you want. But if you're choosing it because you don't have any other options that are going to put food on the table, that's not okay. Right. Especially if you're then criminalized for it. Right. And if if you're choosing something that is outside of the law, because it puts food on the table, you know, in a way that is more efficient than the other options that are legal, you know, mm-hmm. all of this stuff works together within a system that is designed, you know, to not just uh, punish communities of color more, you know, for doing the same thing that, that white people do, you know, but it's also designed to keep that system going. Right. But the point is that, you know, I looked at Angel at like the people behind the scenes, the people above the line, right? And Angel has 110 episodes, right? Of those episodes, five of 110 were directed by a woman. 27 of 110 episodes had a female writer. And of those 27, nine were co-written with a man. Wow. All right. I looked at and I could not determine, you know, like the demographic makeup aside from male and female. You know, Mm -hmm. um, I was able everybody I looked at, everybody I knew was white. Mm -hmm. But there may have been some. But the thing is, if there were people on this writing staff who were not white, they may have been the only one. Right. Which is a very difficult position to put one person in because they cannot represent every identity and and you know these groups are not monoliths like how one person feels about racial issues um, white supremacy issues patriarchal issues is going to be different from how somebody else feels the problem is that we do have like an overwhelming representation especially at this time in in television history it is so overwhelmingly white men Mm -hmm. And it is a white, a definitely a white perspective. And if you look at, at Happy Anniversary as well in this context, a white male perspective, right? Oh, we have yeah. male entitlement in one episode. We have white supremacy in another episode. And then we give the line to a black man to say, well, what were you doing that made this police brutality happen? Right. And the thing is that police brutality and that kind of thing is not is not acceptable. I don't care what you were doing. Right. Their job is to keep the community safe. And then, so we have this guy, Jackson, whose, you know, role here seems to be a justification of this idea that there are people who deserve this, mm-hmm. that, you know, he's got a gun and he's, you know, misbehaving and he's a bad apple and all of that kind of stuff to kind of justify why we see, uh, you know, as a culture, we see, you know, black communities in this very negative, you know, they're breaking laws, they're in gangs, they're doing all of this stuff. And it feels like a character that was specifically written to justify that point of view, which I don't think is necessary in this episode right um and i don't think it's it's helpful and the problem is that when we see a black person who does these things right or when we see a person of color who does these things and we see this you know now in our, in the way that our news is reported right you know then they represent the entire community right but when a white person does something bad it's just an individual with mental health issues right. you know and and the reason why i'm talking about this to this extent is that When we have writing staffs that are fully white, that are almost entirely male, we have a problem because we see everything from this white perspective. And for a white person, you look at the cops and you think they keep me safe. They don't harass me unfairly. Like if, you know, if a white person gets picked up for a crime, chances are they did something to do it. But that's not true with every community. So... All of this to say, I cannot speak for, you know, the black experience in America. I what I know, I, I, you know, know, because that's the extent of my knowledge. I may have been missing nuance here. There may be things that I'm not getting that I'm not talking about. Mm-hmm. But what I see here is a very white perspective. And and we're using this story to kind of justify that perspective, because when the cop shoots, he doesn't shoot the black guy, he shoots the white guy, mm-hmm. right? So obviously he's colorblind. <laughs> like, obviously this isn't an issue. So I think that, like, it's it's a problem. And this is why when I argue for why we need, like, more diversity and normalization within our writing staffs, we need 
people who will see these things, who will see these perspectives, who will realize that when we tell these stories, we're gaslighting communities by saying, well, it's deserved because you're breaking the law. Right. Without talking about all of the other things that contribute to those elements. And also that a lot of times they're not breaking the law. We have this thing. He's got his gun calls out walking while black. Right. Right. Existing while black is a reason to get harassed by the police in some communities, in a lot of communities, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that's not fair and it's not right. We also mentioned Rodney King. So we know that there was a consciousness of this, but this is written from a very white perspective. And when we tell our stories that way, what we're doing and we did this in Happy and anniversary and we're doing this here and happy anniversary when we don't call out you know that this is wrong for him to freeze his girlfriend during sex forever because he didn't want to give her the power to leave him Mm -hmm. you know that's a bad thing and we need to call it out when we talk about these kids as though they've as though it's their fault right they've done something to deserve you know this kind of brutality from these cops like i don't think that that's that's a nuanced perspective. It feels like a very white perspective and it's, it's kind of disturbing, but I do want to call this stuff out because I think that it's important in our storytelling. Storytelling is so powerful and so important and we cannot underestimate how important it is that we not tell every story from one perspective exactly from one point of view. And I think this is a very, very white point of view. Yeah. And and in addition to all of that, which I Mm -hmm. I completely am in line with you, it also really Mm -hmm. bothered me that the role of poverty and its connection to crime is also completely ignored because these kids are also homeless. Yeah. This is a shelter. So this is a vulnerable population. Mm -hmm. And the effects of poverty and the cycles of that poverty and the way that it ties into crime and the way that you can end up with a criminal record because you got a parking ticket that you could not afford to pay for. Oh, God. You know, like there's there's Mm -hmm. so much to that. And it felt like it was also just lumped into all of this. Right. Not to mention that like some 40 percent of kids who are homeless are homeless because they're gay and they got kicked out of their household. You know, like a lot of kids get in that situation because of that. We don't have any recognition of that at all, you know, in this. And granted, it's not the job of the story to like to focus on all of these because it's it's so broad. You know, a story is about focusing on one thing and telling that story really well. But I think that when we, when we present these ideas unquestioned, mm-hmm. we, we gaslight people who know that reality is different from that. Right. And this is the second time that Angel yeah. has tried to do a cop story. You know, we had the whole magic training voodoo stick and the emotional yes. whammy and you know, mm-hmm. so then we had all the cops on emotional overload, and now we have all the mm-hmm. cops as zombies. And yeah, it it doesn't align with the show, and it feels like they're trying to do something with it that they just yeah. don't have the capacity to do. Yeah, and they're not doing it well. No, they're not telling that story not at well. all. Not at you all. You know, and and so I feel like there's a lot of justification. You know, in this episode, even while we're calling out Walking While Black, even while we're talking about Rodney King, you know, there's still that justification of it. What did you do? Right. You know, as a child Mm -hmm. who has nobody protecting them, who has to come to a shelter. And let's not forget that Anne was like, we don't have any beds. You didn't come in on time. Right. You know, that's it. You're on the street. You know, I mean, two children. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it's it's not safe. It's not right. And if children are breaking the law, especially children. Yes. You know, I mean, my God, these are people that need help and need support and need somebody to care for them. Exactly. So, yeah, I just I I I found it to be like it was really difficult for me to watch this episode. I had a really hard time. with it. Me too. Me too. I hated the whole thing. All right. So while I've gone on my big rant. You know, <laughs> uh, talking about things that I, I, you know, I have a certain perspective on, but probably not a completely nuanced perspective and probably have not stated everything as well as I could have. The bottom line is we need more perspectives in every writing room so that we don't end up in this patriarchal white supremacy place. Yes. And that's it. You know. <laughs> 
Um, that's why it's so important. Um, all right. So let's move on to research mode because I think we have thoroughly, thoroughly staked this episode. Um, so what do you have for research mode? So we had the same question. And yes. always a sign of a bad episode is that it doesn't give me right. any deep research questions. So it was mm-hmm. just, why did Gunn drive the ambulance back to the shelter instead of a damn hospital? No, because like it was one thing they were shooting at him and he had to get out of that. But once he got out of that, he was in an ambulance. Yeah. He had an EMT there. Why not just go to the hospital. hospital? How is the shelter safer than the hospital for Wesley who has been shot in the gut? Yeah, I, I just couldn't. Like, I couldn't make any sense of that. It didn't make any sense at all. That's all I got. Like, I, didn't I had nothing. I, I just, you know, sometimes you watch an episode and it just saps your faith in humanity. And you're like, oh my God, went like, no, yeah. just no. Yeah. So, yeah. These two back no, to back. It was really a tough week. It was, <laughs> it was, it was a, a tough really week tough week to watch these episodes and be so frustrated. But the nice thing is, after last week, which was a little rough, and this week, which is extremely rough, we're going to be getting into some better episodes yes, as we, we move are. forward. But until then, I'm going to give us one to brood on. The Thin Deadline may be the worst episode of Angel so far, and it might also be the worst episode of Angel throughout the entire run, but I will hold my jury on that. We do nothing to advance any plot. The narrative is a muddy mess, and it is ultimate in skippers. Yes. (laughs) We start, but don't do anything else with the girl with the eye in the back of her head. We're going to pick that up next week. There's no reason why we couldn't have started it next week. We just leave this thread kind of lying there. Overall, while some skippers are definitely worth watching, even if they don't do anything big with the big story, the thin deadline can be buried, forgotten, and never reanimated, and you will not miss a thing. So that's it for the thin deadline. All right, Kelly, what's making you thirsty this week? So again, like my research question, uh, I got nothing. So not even my sexy imagination can work with these episodes. (laughs) Well, I mean, Lorne. Well, yes, but see, snark and wisdom in tandem delight me. Mm -hmm. But there's a difference between perfect happiness and still thirsty. Yeah, true. And in the face of this misogynistic, entitled pity party bullshit, attempted murder, yes. perpetual rape, and zombie cops, no, I just, I got nothing. This this is the story yeah. equivalent of not tonight, dear, I have a headache. Yes, no, I think absolutely it is. And you know what? Fair enough. But do you have a favorite part? I do have a favorite part. Okay. And this, of mm-hmm. course, is from Lauren. When he was talking about being able to hold a note And he said, I can hold a note forever, but eventually that's just noise. It's the change we're listening for, the note coming after and the one after that. That's what makes it music. Yeah. And oh, poetry and philosophy and wisdom. I love it. And and in the context of music, too, that that was Mm -hmm. so beautiful. And I wish that it belonged in a different episode. I do, too, because I think that that stuff from Lauren was really great, Mm -hmm. you know, and change is what gives things meaning. That's what I talk about in story, you know, in in narrative theory is is story is a series of events with meaning. And it's the change that gives it that meaning. And that's what I teach in my classes. And that's exactly what Lauren is talking about. I absolutely love the way that he expressed that. I think that was great. It was beautiful. Yeah. So what about you? What's your favorite part? Well, I think Angry Angel. Like, I liked when he was opening up to Lorne, and he says, I'm trying to atone for a hundred years of unthinkable evil. Newsflash, I never can. Mm-hmm. And he goes through this whole thing, and, you know, wear more plaid, Angel. <laughs> Be happy, Angel, you know. <laughs> I like that he's addressing his anger. You know, Darla had a shot at redemption, something that he doesn't have. And Wolfram and Hart took that away. And now, insult added to injury, he has to kill her. Right. He has to clean up that mess. You know, he fired his friends as much to save them from what he was going through as separating from them so they wouldn't stop him. And it's it's a nice moment, I think, for Angel. And I, I always like Angry. I, there are two flavors of Angel that I love. I love Angry Angel and I love Angel, you know, pretending to be somebody to, to you know, get something over. Yeah. So, <laughs> I like that. Yeah, me too. So we want to hear from you. To join in the discussion on Twitter, follow Lonnie at Lonnie Dianrich and me at Dr. Kelly Jones and use the hashtag still dead. 
For more in-depth discussion, visit the Chipperish forums. Go to chipperish.com, click on forum, and join in on the fun. Or you can support Chipperish Media to the tune of a dollar a month or more and gain access to the live chat in Discord where you can hang out with me and Kelly and all the Chipperish patrons who can all say Einstein's entwined ten times really fast. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out more. And you can also show your support for Still Dead by going to Apple Podcasts and giving us a review, talking about us on social media. Those are all really, really good things. And speaking of reviews, Kelly, to say thanks to our rogue demon hunters who take the time to write reviews, we turn to the Prophecy Scrolls. I'm writing these in reverse chronological order, so post your review and you will hear your prophecy soon. For Addie River Asanda, Cordelia has seen you in a vision, rising up as the champion in a complicated network of LA's karaoke bars, fighting the good fight one song at a time. You shall open a portal to a volcano dimension and send forth the truly terrible episodes of Angel along with the villains and idiots who need actual consequences for their actions. (laughs) But don't worry, the portal opens with a key, not an equation, and Phantom Dennis knows just where to find it. In celebration of your victory, you shall sing the duet of all duets with Lorne at the Super Bowl and we shall cheer you on. Oh, God, I love those prophecies. They're so good. (laughs) We will be back next time with Season 2, Episodes 15 and 16 for Prize and Epiphany, and they're both watchers, and they're good. So until then, the world ending? Kind of a funny story. 